0: So I say that I I can say this now. He is the only. He was the only Iowa NAB pastor at his church longer than me, and I mean he was there longer by uh, a long shot. Like he was twenty-five some years there, right? So uh, he was there quite a while, and um, that, that church was very blessed to have him. I know, uh, and their loss is the UMR's gain, right? Um, he's still not sure how he feels about all that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Dan is a man, I'm going to embarrass him a little bit, who uh, I have a very deep respect for. He has taught me a lot in just watching how he dealt with various struggles in his church. Because no 25-year no ministry is going to do without struggles. of mm-hmm. right. yeah, It's going to happen. Watching him uh, through that and and just uh, seeing his grace and his leadership uh, really impacted me. And so I have appreciated your ministry. Um, And actually, it's kind of cool that at least a couple of days during the week, you're close enough to have coffee with, so it's awesome. So uh, Dr. Dan Andrews is going to open the word for us. While he's doing that, I'm going to get his tablet here to work correctly so he can see his slides.
1: Maybe there'll be slides up here. Am I getting to uh, advance them? It's not working.
0: Well, it says that the session is ended. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna
1: okay. we're gonna stand up here, and you don't want me to do a song and dance. because gonna be really <laughs> bad. Um. Don't worry. I know a guy. You know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how much you're
0: asking. Make sure it's plugged in good. we that all sorts of technology issues today.
1: Yeah, but um, that's going to fall off the podium, I guarantee, though.
0: Right, when he starts pounding it with the fire and brimstone. That's right. Yeah.
1: Technology, I. I, I I'm often thrilled by it and often frustrated with it. So, um, still not there, but at least the static has gone away. There you go. There we go. Is that the one? Ah, there we go. I serve as a regional minister of the upper Mississippi region of the North American Baptist Conference. That's my job title, and it takes five minutes to get through. There are 42 churches scattered around the Umar. And Renee and I had the tremendous privilege of serving for 25 years in Victor. This year was Renee and I's 30th wedding anniversary. And so for our wedding anniversary, some people want to go on cruises. Some people want to go on big trips. We decided we'd move. And so we went ahead and decided to change everything in our lives. God has blessed us with five wonderful children. Ranging from age 25, my youngest is with me, and yes, she's embarrassed right now looking away. Brielle is with us. She's she's 14 years of age. My last official event as pastor of Victor Baptist Church was to officiate at my second daughter's wedding. Abigail got married on May 21st. We said goodbye to Victor on May 22nd. And then... I became a grandfather. Now, I was told that grandparents are required to show a minimum of 10 minutes of pictures of their grandchildren, so I'm just going to sit down. No, I won't do that to you. I think it's really cool that we moved to Sear, actually, Waterloo, six days after my granddaughter was born, because Renee and I moved to Victor six days after Larissa was born. We had the incredible privilege of staying an entire generation in the city of Victor, and I wouldn't have changed it for the world. But I I wanted to go back to a couple years ago, I was meeting with a, a new believer, and the new believer was asking me, Pastor, what's your favorite book in the Bible? If somebody came up to you and asked you that question, how would you answer it? My standard response is, well, whatever book we're going through in church, that becomes my favorite. They said, no, 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 you have to have a favorite. Well, I don't know if I have a favorite, but I do have a favorite author. I I don't entirely know why, but I relate really well to the Apostle Paul. The way he writes, the way he thinks, I I love his logical approach, And, and I've always been really comfortable with the writings of Paul. But if you go to the writings of Paul, you will find that Paul wrote primarily to big cities, cities like Rome, cities like Corinth, cities like Ephesus, and these major metropolitan areas. But there was one city that was different than the rest of the cities. If I can take you on a bit of a history lesson and take you back 500 years before the Apostle Paul began his ministry. There were these two major trade routes, one that ran from the north and one that ran from the east, and they came together in the city of Colossae. And Colossae was an incredibly important town. But then about 150 years before the Apostle Paul shows up, the trade routes shift. The one from the north shifts to the west and ends up in the city of Hierapolis. The one from the east shifts south, and now they suddenly are combining in Laodicea, and the city of Colossae is bypassed and forgotten. The reason that really kind of speaks to me is I lived in the city of Victor. If you had driven from the east coast to the west coast in the 1950s, you would have traveled across Highway 6 it was the main artery from New York City to Los Angeles and it just so happened that the, the Highway ran right through the center of Victor some of the old-timers in church used to talk about Fall days when there were home Iowa football games that it would literally become a parking lot in downtown Iowa or downtown Victor you couldn't even cross the city And then in the early 1950s They decided we don't want people to drive through small towns Let's bypass Victor. And then in the late 50s and finished in the early 60s, Interstate 80 came through, and Victor became Forgottenville. So much so that I don't know if you've, I assume you've seen the movie Cars. I was sharing shortly after we took my son for his birthday to see Cars, and I was talking to one of the elderly ladies in our church, and she said, I went to it. It's the worst movie I've ever seen. I hate it. forgotten. Nobody stops in Victor who doesn't live in Victor. Does God really care about places like Victor? Places like Colossae? If you go today, this is what you'll see. They know exactly where the city of Colossae once was. But there's nothing of significance. There's no reason to dig there. And yet the Apostle Paul Why it's one of his most precious letters to the church at Colossae. So if I were to choose a favorite letter, a favorite book, I think I might choose the book of Colossians. I would love to take the rest of the afternoon and walk with you through the book of Colossians. Orville, however, told me that I'm not allowed to speak for four or five hours today. So I just want to tackle the greetings. The Apostle Paul begins with this amazing greeting in which he writes to to the church at Colossae, and, and he says to them, Brothers, don't rush past that too quickly, because that's exactly the same term he uses for Timothy. There may be no one in Paul's life that was closer to Paul than Timothy. Barnabas goes on his first missionary with Paul, but then on the second missionary journey, Timothy is picked up along the way, and he is as close to Paul as anyone can be. In fact, two of Paul's letters, his two final letters probably, are written to Timothy. Timothy is as close a person as he can find, and he calls Timothy a brother, and he calls these people he's never even known. And chapter 2 says this, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Paul has never met these believers. And yet he refers to them as brothers. I, I don't have the time to run down this rabbit trail, but it is an interesting thought. Do you view the Christian in Pakistan Iran India, China as a brother or sister in Christ. I, 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 I love my country. I'm very thankful I'm born an American, but one of the struggles I, I, I find with our country is we sometimes want to elevate our country above everyone else. I'm glad I live here, but I have brothers and sisters all around the world begins his letter by saying that I am so excited to serve you as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now I, I fear that oftentimes I was really tempted to spend the entire morning on these first two verses because there's tremendous amount there. We run past this because we think, alright Paul, we remember Acts chapter 9, you're going to the road to Damascus, you see these bright lights, God set you apart for the ministry, clearly you're an apostle by the will of God. we out we'll to. I think maybe the reason why this verse jumped out at me is because I am primarily a creature of habit. My wife and I, we couldn't be different. When we go out to eat, she would love to go to the most unique and strangest and bizarre food place she can find. I want a burger and fries. In fact, wherever we go, I order a burger and fries. I don't need new foods. I like the foods I like. I loved pastoral ministry, because it had a rhythm. Every single week, aimed towards Sunday. I knew what I had to do. Uh, Monday was my day off. Tuesday and Wednesday were visiting days. There was a chance to have a midweek service, and then study Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was largely the same. This role, I never know what day it is. I often don't know what city I'm in. Why do I continue? There's really only one reason. Because I'm convinced that this is God's will for my life today. Tomorrow morning, most of you will wake up and go off to work, to something in your life. I really do hope that you don't go about your daily work thinking this is what I have to do. I would encourage you to God has called me to do. The will of God for me today is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace. I I don't want to run past that too fast. Every single book that Paul writes, he begins with that same greeting, but they're always in the same. And I fear sometimes we try and reverse them. We live in a world that's filled with chaos. You can't watch the television. You can't listen to the news. You can't pick up a newspaper. You can't go online and read all of the different information without finding yourself feeling this internal chaos, wishing and desiring for peace. And we seek peace. But we have to have something before peace. The grace of God is what leads and until we learn to obsess and to consume ourselves with God's grace we'll never find peace in the midst of life and every single one of Paul's letters begins with his plea to grace and peace and, and then he moves and, and he comes into this well, my bible has titles i don't know if your bible has titles or not it calls this the thanksgiving and prayer now far be it for me to correct I will go ahead and correct the Bible. Uh, I don't like that. Because if you notice really carefully, both verse number three and verse number nine are gonna begin with the same statement. Paul says, we are praying for you. This is not Paul's prayer and Thanksgiving. This is all a prayer. But I put this up there, I know you can't read it or you have a lot better eyes than I do. But if you'll notice, half his prayer is dedicated Half the Thanksgiving, half the petition. I'm going to simply give you the assumption that every single one of you this week spent some time in prayer. Maybe it was a few minutes, maybe it was hours every day, I don't know. Look back on your prayer this past week and divide it two categories. Time dedicated to Thanksgiving, time dedicated to prayer. Would you say that about half of your prayer life is dedicated to saying thank you to God for Spoiler alert, I can't. I I fear that far too often prayer becomes our grand opportunity to see God as a divine Santa Claus. Here's my wish list. Please fulfill it. I'll be home waiting. But Paul spends so much of his letter giving thanks. In fact, go back to the Psalms. I I love the Psalms because much of the Psalms are dedicated to nothing but simply pausing And praising and thanking God for who he is and for what he's done. I'm not going to have the time to cover the petitions this morning. I just want to look at the Thanksgiving. Because I I think for most of us, Thanksgiving comes a little harder. And so the Apostle Paul is going to give thanks for three specific things. He's going to give thanks always for the Colossians. Now, I, I don't believe that means that Paul spent every moment of every day in Thanksgiving for the Colossians. I think what he's saying is every time he prayed for them, he, he gave thanks to them. He, he couldn't offer a prayer to them without saying thank you to God. And, and he thanked God, first of all, for the Colossians. He then thanked God uh, for the gospel. And finally, he thanks God for a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. But he begins by giving thanks to the Colossians for two specific things. In verse number 4, it says, Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And of your love for all the saints, he gives thanks for their faith. I fear in the world we live in, we have gotten this misunderstanding that you either live by science or you live by faith. In fact, we are constantly reminded in the news that we need to be people of science. And there's this impression that if you're a person of science, you don't live by faith. But may I suggest you can't live without faith. You drove here this morning i didn't see too many people walk maybe one or two walk but do you realize that when you get in a car and you drive you're putting your life in the hands of total strangers you've never met and will never see coming the opposite direction in fact every once in a while just a week or so ago i was in chicago when i came home i heard this story of a major crash on one of the interstates in chicago because somebody decided to drive the wrong direction down the interstate. You ever been on a new road? How do you know the new road isn't going to take you off the end of a cliff? I was listening to a pastor a couple weeks ago. He was sharing about a family in their area that went on vacation to New Zealand, and they were riding on a go-kart, and they were going the trail until they plunged 200 feet to their death because the trail ended at the cliff, and nobody told them. By somebody you didn't see and didn't know how do you know they didn't put our stick in it all of us if we live long enough will come to that point in our lives where we will find ourselves sitting in a room with a doctor and he will make the comment I really believe in order to fix this you need surgery he refers you to somebody you probably have never met you sit down with five minutes and then you say all right I'll put my life in your hands. I will trust you completely. Cut me open. Take it out. Fix it. We need faith. The question is not, do you have faith? The question is, what is your faith in? Paul doesn't just give thanks for their faith. He gives thanks that their faith is in Christ Jesus. Every single one of us understand we will die. None of us are foolish enough to believe that death will never visit us. How do we decide what to believe about after death? Do I believe the scientists who tell me once I'm dead, I'm dead? That's the end of it. There is nothing. Do I, I believe those that say, at the end, there will be this grand scale, and if your good works, all your bad works should be accepted. Do we believe those that say, if you go through the proper religious rituals, whatever those are, Baptism, Lord's Supper, church attendance, whatever the rituals. If I do the rituals, I'm good. Or do I believe that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Do I believe to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly? His faith is counted for righteousness. By grace you are saved. Through faith, that not of yourself is a gift of God, not of works. Let's be honest, no boast. God sent his one and only son into the world that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. All of us have faith in something for that moment we cease to exist. What is your faith? In? Paul was thankful that the, the believers there in Corinth had faith in Christ Jesus that produced love. I'm convinced there are no words in the English language that are used more and understood less than the word love. Uh, Several years ago, I think one of the first years Renee and I were married, we attended a a, a Valentine's banquet at the church I was working at. And I couldn't tell you anything else that the speaker had shared, but he shared this illustration because I've come back to it often. He said, I challenge you on your way home, stick your radio on seat. And just let it go through. And if you've ever done that, it stays at a station for about 10 seconds and goes on to the next one. And he says, as it goes from station to station, count how many of the songs are on the subject of love. And then try and figure out what love is based on those songs. Let's see. It's an ooey-gooey feeling. It's uh, some kind of sexual pleasure. It's this uh, thing we all need but none can find. What exactly is love? Well, if I may let John try and define it for us, if if you go back to John chapter four, John is gonna say, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's really easy for me to get distracted by myself. I'm gonna let myself hear because I was listening this last week to somebody who made a point that I had never really thought about. Did you know that love is one of the strongest defenses God. Because at the moment of creation, God either didn't have love and had to change, or hasn't existed always. Because if God is one, who did he have to love? Before creation, there was no one or nothing to love. He couldn't have loved until he created the world. The only way love is possible is for God to be this amazing triune being that exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, in this very context, John is going to appeal to all three of them. He's going to say the Father sent the Son and gave the Spirit. In fact, in all eternity past, before he created anything, God existed as love, in this perfect love amongst himself. And thus, because he has this love. You and I can truly learn what love is. What is love? Well, John is going to go on to say that this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is meeting the need of the one we love no matter the it take for you to be willing to let your child die in the place of a total stranger? Allow your child to die for someone who hates you and is running away from you. The greatest act of love is that God put the punishment that I deserve, that you deserve, onto his only son. But I think it's really kind of interesting. It says that The Father sent the Son. But if you go back to chapter 3, it actually says that Jesus laid down his life. It wasn't as if Jesus was forced to do this. No, Jesus is as much love as the Father is love. Jesus willingly took your place to provide you. is the willingness to do what is in the best interest of those who love us. And John is going to go on and he's going to talk about what love is and we don't really have time this morning to to delve into it. But back in, in Colossians there's a part of the love that really kind of bothers me. Let's be honest. Aren't there some people who are easy to love? And some people who are really really hard to love? I don't know. There's what, 60 people here this morning? Can you honestly say that you love everyone? Think back to last week again. Love is not an emotion. It's a decision that results in an emotion. It's a choice. You can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Do we Purpose to put others' needs in front of ourselves. One of the things I've tried to do before coming to each church is to watch your services last week. I watched Orville speak on marriage. And see if I, I, I learned this correctly. The whole point of Ephesians chapter 5 is to put the other in front of yourself. Did I get that right? Perfect. Love is the willingness to put others' needs in front of mine that yeah, last week? Are you going to do it this week? No. But Paul gives thanks for the, the faith of the Colossians, the love of the Colossians, and then as he moves on to verse number five, he says, the faith and love that springs up from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you have already heard about the word of truth, the gospel. He's going to share that all of this faith and love comes from the gospel. Let me give you the 90-second s- summary of what the gospel is. The-, the gospel is God created and put Adam and Eve in a perfect environment and gave them everything in all the planet. He said there's one prohibition: You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they,
0: as they enjoyed
1: the garden, we don't know for how long, the serpent came and he tempted Eve. And as Eve was tempted, she takes of the fruit and she takes a bite. And as soon as she's done, she hands it to Adam. Adam chooses his way over God's. And all humanity is cast into sin. Fast forward thousands of years, God finally sends his son to come and to live a perfect life, to completely fulfill the law, to appear on Palm Sunday, and then to give his life as a sacrifice. sin and death. And he makes available to each of us the opportunity, not just to live forever, but to have our hearts changed, to be completely transformed by the good news that Jesus died in your place and came to change you. And eventually he will change the whole planet and one day we will be in his presence forever. The gospel is Jesus died in your place and if you receive that by faith, you I'm afraid that we sometimes get caught up in using words differently than the Bible does. I I don't mean to offend anyone, but I'm a Vikings fan. I grew up in the state of Minnesota, and for the past 50 plus years, I entered this time of the year with the hope that the Vikings are going to win. I see some of you shaking your heads. You know, because there's no chance the like you will ever win in my
0: lifetime. It's not gonna happen, I hope, but come
1: on. We gotta be a little realistic about life. But we hope that today is gonna be better. We hope that tomorrow is gonna be fun. We, we hope, but that's not a biblical definition of hope. A biblical definition of hope is this confident expectation That a future event will transpire. Let me give you one illustration. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's the story of faith. And and the author of Hebrews goes through all of these different illustrations. This is what faith looks like. This is what faith looks like. And he comes to Moses and he says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short term. He regarded disgrace for the sake of of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Can I give you my 92nd summary of the life of Moses? Moses was born to parents who who loved life enough that they weren't going to allow their son to be killed. And so they put him in the, the Nile River and he floats down the river and he Moses is out of brought out of it and he goes into Egypt and he lives in the greatest opulence anyone on the planet could enjoy. And then at age 40 he said no He goes on the backside of the desert, and as he's on the backside of the desert, he sees this flame that clearly becomes a a theophany, a presence of God, who speaks to him, and he says, go back to to Egypt. And so Moses goes back to Egypt, and he confronts the Pharaoh, and then he brings these ten plagues, these incredible uh, miracles by God, and eventually he brings the children of Israel out, but they come to the Red Sea, and God miraculously parts the Red Sea. And then, for 40 years, Moses has the wonderful privilege of traveling in some of the most inhospitable land on planet Earth with a group of people that do nothing but whine and complain. He has to listen to them. Oh, where's the water? We don't have any water. And so God brings it on a rock. It gets so bad that they complain, God sends serpents, and then he raises the bronze serpent. He listens to them whine and complain for 40 years. Finally, after listening to the people complain for 40 years, Moses gets to climb up to the mountain, see the promised land, and die. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very good deal to me. You mean my reward is to listen to people complain for 40 years about me, and then die? Did Moses have it wrong? Orville chaired my ordination council months ago. I don't remember what it was. Um, I don't remember if you've ever been to an ordination. I, I'm sure many of you have. But an ordination, basically, you submit a paper, this is what I believe. Somebody reviews it says, okay, that's orthodox. Then you sit down and people ask questions. And for three hours, people ask me questions. And I don't remember many of them. But I do remember one of them. Somebody said, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, I absolutely do. What do you say to a young mother Day, we will be in the presence of God for all eternity. All of life's struggles will be irrelevant. In fact, Paul is going to make the comment that it is this hope that allows their love to spring out. It's interesting in chapter 10. I love this verse. Beginning in verse 32, the author of Hebrews writes this. Remember those earlier days after which you received the light. When you stood your ground in great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And other times you stood by, side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. What would it take for you to joyfully allow for the hope that was filling the Colossian believers as they were living in light of this amazing hope that was producing the faith and love, but it was also bearing fruit. See, the gospel not only allows us the promise of an eternity in the presence of God, it involves present-day change. But one of the things that most of us struggle with, I I I didn't ever really understand this as a parent. I would. My parents lived in the Twin Cities. We'd go back once or twice a year, and and every time we did, we'd go back, and my parents would say, "Man, I can't believe how much your kids have grown." And I'd think, "Oh, really? They look kind of like they did yesterday." Now with a grandchild that I get to see maybe once a week, it's amazing how growth over time is visible. Growth over a minute or two isn't. My question to you is not, are you different than you were this morning, or even yesterday? Are you different than you were last year, last decade? The gospel produces fruit. But what's even more amazing to me is if you go forward in Paul's petitions, one of the petitions he asks is that you would continue to bear more fruit, because none of us have arrived. None of us will arrive. But Paul gives thanks for this bearing uh, of the fruits, and then... Maybe my favorite Thanksgiving is for this guy by the name of Epaphras. Do you know who Epaphras is? If you don't, you're in really good company, because neither does anybody else. In fact, scholars argue about exactly who this Epaphras could be. Was he the same guy in the book of Philemon that Paul references? Is he he, somebody who comes from the same Ephesus? And you can read stories. That tell you all kinds of information, and then they conclude by saying, yeah, this is mostly our subjective idea. No one knows who Epaphras is. In fact, Paul is going to end his letter with a list of eight names. Tychicus, Onesimus, Arstachus, Mark, Justus, Arikobus, Demas, and Nympha. And I don't think I pronounced most of them correctly, let alone knowing anything about them. Because we live in a star-driven culture where it's only the big name pastors, the, the Andy Stanleys, the Rick Warrens, the Craig Rochelles, the people that everybody's heard of. right now I'm in that really fun reading called the book of Chronicles. You know, where you can catch up with your behind because you go through these names that you can't pronounce and know nothing about. Why in the world does God add that to the scripture? I don't know that I fully understand that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that they would bear more fruit, that they would be strengthened, that they would be thankful that God has removed them from the, the kingdom of darkness and placed them in the kingdom of his dear Son. So let me just leave you with a couple thoughts. Can I challenge you to find one person to be thankful for? No, let, let me scratch that. Can I challenge you? He embarrassed me, so I get to embarrass him. It's only fair play. Pastoring is an incredibly lonely and difficult job. He has the privilege of being invited into life's most difficult times, marriages that are crumbling, lives say you love others. Find one tangible way this week to show that love. Maybe it's sitting down with somebody who can't get out anymore. Maybe it's mowing your neighbor's yard because they're struggling to get it done. I, I, there's a thousand things you can do. But I hope there's one thing you will do. Would you bow your